I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello, I'm Mark Riley, And I'm Rob Hughes. And you're listening to the A to Z of David Bowie, the greatest rock and roll star in the world ever, ever. So, where are we going this time, Bob? K is for Ken Scott. Okay, so born the 20th of April 1947, Ken Scott is a British record producer and engineer. He's known for being one of the five main engineers for the Beatles, as well as engineering records for Elton John, Pink Floyd, David Bowie, Procol Harum, Mahavishnu Orchestra, the Jeff Beck Group, and many, many more. Indeed. So as a producer, Scott is noted for his work with Bowie on Hunky Dory, which we've covered already, uh, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy, uh, Aladdin Sane, and Pinups, alongside uh, Supertramp. He did Crime of the Century and Crime. Record, yeah. White Crisis, uh, Devo, The Tubes, Ronnie Mont- Montrose, loads more. He started working at EMI Recording Studios, later renamed Abbey Road, on the 27th of January 1964 at the age of 16. Oh, what an opportunity! Man. Yeah. Under the guidance of, uh, you know, the veteran engineers at the place called uh, Malcolm Addy and Norman Smith. Yeah, I mean, we talk about this, you know, I mean, it's not like you even you, you even go to college and do no. audio and all that kind of stuff. It's just a thought and, like, somebody maybe likes music. And we've had this before, haven't we, of various other people who whose mum get them jobs at recording studios. And and they go in and they start making tea is a cliche. And then it's yeah. like, press that button. All right, I'll show you what I'm doing here. Yeah. And the next minute, they're engineering these classic records yeah. in one of the most fruitful times in music's history. It's it's unfathomable. It is. It's crazy. Straight from school. Amazing. Yeah. So his first job were in the tape library, and then within six months, he was promoted to second engineer. See, I was yeah. right. AKA button pusher, uh, where his first session was on side two of the Beatles album A Hard Day's oh, Night. Come on. So you're already pinching yourself, aren't you? Among the other artists he worked with as button pusher were Manford Mann, Do Wah Diddy, uh, Peter and Gordon, The Hollies, Judy Garland, mm. crazy, uh, Johnny Mathis, Cliff Richard and the Shadows, and Peter Sellers, who famously did those albums for uh, EMI, didn't he? He did, yeah. Produced by George Martin, of course. Absolutely. After a short time as assistant engineer or button pusher, Scott was promoted to cutting, in other words, mastering, where he spent roughly two years cutting acetates for various artists on the label, as well as many hits that EMI distributed at the time, including the American Motown catalogues. He's involved in all that. Yeah, I mean, the acetates were very important as well, weren't they? Because they were, I mean, obviously no real tape kind of facility for mm. people to hawk around or, you know, obviously further down the line, cassettes and CDs. And so acetates, very brittle things, had to be really, you know, engineered and mastered correctly. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've had loads of records that have gone from tape to the original acetate that they will then do the pressings from. Mm. And uh, George Peckham, you know, Porky yeah, Pine sure. and all that, yeah. it was 
was a real a real art to it, you know, and making sure that there wasn't too much bottom end. Because if you remember the Public Image album, uh, Metal Box, yes, that was that was mastered with so much bottom end on it. Which they wanted, mm. but it just meant that most of the original uh, editions that were put out there jumped like Billy-O because right. of Jar Wobble's amazing bass, but it was just like it would rattle your chest and make the, the, the needle jump everywhere. Right, so okay. a, a hugely important job already for Ken yeah, Scott. Yeah, such a tender age. In September 67, Scott was promoted to engineer, his first session being the Beatles uh, on Your Mother Should Know. His first orchestral recording session came a few days later when he recorded the strings, the brass, and the whole choir for I Am The Walrus. Give over. So during his time with the Beatles, Scott worked on the singles Lady Madonna, Hello, Goodbye and Hey Jude, which I seem to remember again talking about cutting and the mastering mm. and all that. Wasn't that the longest single ever at that it, point in time? It was, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which again, he's like, I don't know if he actually cut that. He probably didn't, but that was a feat in itself. Uh, as well as the Beatles, the White Album and Magical Mystery Tour EP. And in late 1969, shortly after the completion of Procol Harum's A Salty Dog, he left EMI for the independent Trident Studios. Oh, here we go. At uh, the suggestion of Elton John's producer, Gus Dudgeon. Yeah, so he soon found himself working with the Beatles again on various solo projects. So they obviously really trusted him, didn't they? The Beatles individually loved him, thought, let's keep him on. So yeah. he's, uh, he's working with John Lennon on Give Peace a Chance and Cold Turkey, uh, Ringo on It Don't Come Easy, and also on George Harrison's All Things Must Pass. A mixed Elton John's Madman Across the Water after fellow Trident engineer, a guy called Robin Cable, suffered severe injuries in a traffic accident. So, you know, this kind of tragedy just let him into the old Elton John world as well. He started working on Honky Chateau and Don't Shoot Me, I'm Only the Piano Player. Okie dokie. So other artists that he worked with whilst at Trident included America. We've discussed them before. We don't need to go there again, Bob. <laughs> uh, Harry we Neil's... Could do. Well, yeah. yeah, you like them. I'm not oh, keen. I like the single. Let me just qualify that. Sure, sure. But they were also, weren't they, at one point... So Supposed to open for Bowie, I think it was Friars in Ailes, right. and it didn't happen. Something like that. Uh, but it sounds like I've got a real bee in my bonnet about <laughs> <You> America. <laughs> anyway, let's leave that be. Lou Reed, famously, oh. Rick Wakeman, the Rolling Stones, Al Cooper, and Linda's Farm, as well as the award-winning Coca-Cola advert, like to buy oh, the, world the world a Coke. Coke. Oh, right. Let's get to the Bowie connection, which we've hinted at. So also during this period, he reunited Bowie because he'd been the engineer on uh, Bowie's first album, hadn't he? And also the man who sold the world. When we talk about the first album. It's the self-titled second album really, the Space Oddity album. It's called the same as the first album. It's not confusing at all. Yeah, and he started working with Bowie uh, on the, of course, you know, on the Freddie Beretti record. Didn't really work out. Arnold Corns, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, Ken was keen to move into production at this point, and we have kind of covered this uh, a a lot further down the line. Uh, As fate would have it, Bowie said he was just about to start to record a new album but didn't feel comfortable about producing it entirely by himself. So, he and Scott agreed to co-produce what became, here we go, Hunky Dory. Yeah. Hey, you got to go and see the episode H from this. Mm. Well, one of the four episodes of H in this podcast, I think. Uh, when we set off doing this podcast, I think we thought it might be like 26, maybe <laughs> 28 episodes. Yeah. Uh-uh. Oh. It's looking more like it's going to be about, I don't know, 60 or 70, isn't it? Yeah, really? yeah. Uh, but crazy. Anyway, um, after the album was completed, but before it was even released, work began on the next album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, again with Scott as co-producer. Oh. 
Okay, as mentioned, Scott went on to co-produce Aladdin Sane, CA for that one, and pinups, uh, as well as a little scene midnight special TV um, sort of one-off, wasn't it? The 1980 Floor Show. We've all seen it. We've seen it. After spending three months in Hollywood recording Superdram and receiving more production work from the company as a result, Scott decided to permanently move his family to LA in 1976. He did. So he rented a house just across the street from Frank Zappa, noisy neighbour. Scott lived in Los Angeles until 2013, then relocated to Nashville. He is now living in Yorkshire, hasn't he? he? Is. As we both know, I mean, I've bumped into him on several occasions, hmm. uh, once at the Deershed Festival, when he was doing a brilliant Q&A in the company of Woody. Yeah. And I have got a photograph of me and Woody and Ken Scott outside a tent in I've the field. I've seen it. And, um, and and he's, he's very happy. He's a, he's a lecturer, isn't he? And yeah. doing, doing brilliant work. Yeah, he gives all these talks around the world, doesn't he? In 2012, he released a memoir entitled Abbey Road to Ziggy Stardust. What else could it have been called? Indeed. Uh, and he's currently, as you mentioned, senior lecturer at Leeds Beckett University, specialising in production. How great to go. Have you been to one of his lectures? I know a couple of people who have. I haven't, no. Oh, I would great. really dearly love to, but yeah, I haven't. Yeah, just taking it all apart and just showing people how he did it. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So uh, this is an interview uh, with Ken Scott by whom? Well, this would have been me, Mark. You, in 2009, Bob. specifically, we were talking about Starman. And, of course, you know, you go back into the catalogue, and now he got working with Bowie and all the rest of it. And it was just an opportunity to talk to what I still see as a legend. Well, he is, and a lovely man to boot. OK, not to boot him, he's just a lovely man to boot. I have very fond memories of uh, recording with David. This is Ken. He was so good to work with in the studio. It was back in the time when it was two albums a year, so we did them quickly. We'd spend two or three weeks recording, then a couple of weeks mixing. And he to say he was the ultimate professional. Yeah, Ziggy Sessions, he carried on, started just a few weeks after Hunky Dory, which we know. Uh, David came up to me and said, right, I'm going to record another album. I said, well, Hunky Dory isn't even out yet. And he said, well, my management want me to do another album so we can get a better deal. I don't think you're going to like this one as much, Ken, because it's more rock and roll. So then again, you see, it is, it is great because it's a Tony DeFries, you know, and a game of yeah. Tony DeFries. Uh, but thinking, because he was trying to get him out of the Mercury deal and all that and get a new deal with RCA, mm. wasn't he? Mm. And maybe Tony Tony DeFries didn't have that much faith in Hunky Dory. Maybe not. And it's... just wanted something more sassy and a bit more kind of like the Stones or whatever yeah. you want to say. Electric rock and roll. Yeah. You know? So, uh, Ken, again, I guess it happened very quickly once David had done Starman on Top of the Pops and the Ziggy album was out. I have a distinct memory of sitting in the reception area at Trident Studios, reading the paper, when Elton John's producer, Gus Dudgeon, walked in and congratulated me. I looked at him and I said, what the hell for? And he said, Ziggy went into the charts at number seven this week. I just went, eh, me. It just blew me away. After the non-success of Hunky Dory, almost immediately after it came out, the Ziggy album was in the top ten. I've always had my thoughts as to whether Tony DeFries, Bowie's manager, paid a lot of college students to go out and buy it on that first week, though I have no proof of it. <laughs> Great disclaiming there. So many people, us included, when talking about Tony DeFries, yeah. put disclaimers yeah. in there because we know. You have to. You let's have face to. it. He said I worked, he carried on. He said I worked on Space Odyssey and the man who sold the world, and I always thought, yes, David was a nice guy and relatively talented, relatively talented, interested, mm. but a superstar, never. So when he asked me to co-produce Hunky Dory with him, I thought it was great because I wanted to get into production at that point, and this was perfect. Here was a record that would probably never mean anything, and it would get my chops up as a producer without anyone ever finding out that I'd done it. Almost a demo yeah. for Ken Scott in yeah. his mind, and he continues, his publisher and myself were over at my house going through demos for Hunky Dory when it dawned on me for the first time that this guy could be a superstar. I suddenly thought I'd made a huge mistake. My first outing could actually be heard by a lot of people. So, yes, I realised he could be huge, not necessarily that he would be. Yes, he was very driven and wanted to be a star. He wanted it 
on his own terms, yeah. which we know about Bowie. Yeah, crucially. I mean, I did interview him very recently, in fact, not about Bowie, but we were talking about the Beatles and the White Album specifically, and he right. was talking about his experiences on that record, which he said, you know, there is a myth about that where the Beatles were just falling apart and really hating each other. And he said, it's just nonsense. There were, of course, you know, there were kind of, you know, sort of touchy moments in the studio, but the rest of it he said it was just a joy. You know, it was great to see them all together. But while he was talking about that, one of the things he said was, he said, I've got, I asked him, do you have any regrets about the way anything was done? He said, not at all. He said, the only regret I have in my whole career is the way I mixed uh, Watch That Man on uh, Aladdin Sane. He said he deliberately, management wanted the vocals way down in the mix, so he just did what he was told. He said, listening back, he was never happy with it, and he wishes he could have done it differently. Right, OK. I mean, it's, it's such an exciting record because the music's up so high. Yeah, so, yeah. And you can still hear what Bowie's saying. Mm-hmm. So, But, yeah, that, if that's Ken's own bugbear. And the only one out of such a career. Oh, and yeah. amazing. And we have to say at this point, we, we, we're done with Ken Scott in this particular uh, part. And we've not really gone and rattled on about him for ages mm-hmm. for somebody so important. But uh, let's not forget, he, he's, he's omnipresent throughout all of the albums yeah. that he worked on. So, and, uh, yeah, big up enough respect to Ken Scott because he's great. Absolutely. And hopefully as well... Uh, Ken is going to be talking to us when we do our interview sections at the end of this podcast. Yeah, the plan series. being. So, uh, yeah, we may as well let this out of the uh, bag now, eh? Mm. So, uh, when we get to Zed, we're obviously going to do like Ziggy Stardust mm. and the motion pitch and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but we're also going to do um, we're going to do Heroes to Zeros, which will cover uh, the entire career of David Bowie and people who work with him, yeah. either associates or friends. That's what we're hoping anyway. Mm. And we're hoping to get the likes of Ken Scott and Woody Woodmansey. Uh, so, all of these things will hopefully just be the 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 bookend to yes. the series if you like hiring for your small business if you're not looking for professionals on linkedin you're looking in the wrong place that's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank linkedin helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, 
You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. So, uh, K is also for the Conrads. Now then, in 1962, aged just 15, Bowie joined his first band, the Conrads, with a hyphen in the middle. Uh, basically a rock and roll band. The name was a pun on the singer Jess Conrad. <laughs> okay. Do you know, we used to talk about uh, Jess Conrad all the time on the did. Radio 1 programme, Mark yeah. Radcliffe and I. And, uh, and, and, and it was slightly tongue-in-cheek, but we did play Side Saddle and stuff like that. Mm. And it, and it kind of got him a little bit of uh, traction, yeah. which was strange. And I'll never forget, sat in the office in Radio 1 one afternoon, and I picked up the phone and said, hello, Mark Riley. He went, Mark, it's a Conmeister. Because <laughs> that's what we used to call him, <laughs> the Conmeister. And, uh, and he was really... <laughs> really sweet and so and I didn't know this at that point in time so I would have asked him actually about Bowie and all that kind of stuff and we need to say at this point in time Davy Bowie was Davy Jones or Davy mm, Jones yes. and so but we're going to call him Bowie all the way through because it'll become really really tiresome if we kind of slip back and forth between Bowie and yeah, Jones of course. It? unless but, we really need to to make it obvious alright okay so let's pick up the story here so he's joined the Conrads they're formed by a drummer Dave Crook and the guitar player Neville Wills just after Easter 1962 singer George Underwood this is Bowie schoolmate of course yeah. joined the band then in June that year he brought along his best mate and sax player David Jones stroke Bowie uh, Underwood said later David was dying to get into the band he regularly asked if I could get him in right okay so apparently the name the Conrads came about whilst they were appearing with Jess uh, Conrad so he was they were on the same bill yeah. as him oh you know and uh, who introduced them as my Conrads you know <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a weird one <laughs> uh, hyphenated the name uh, or Bowie hyphenated the name when he designed the logo for Dave Hadfield's bass drum okay so saturday the 16th of june 1962 marked bowie's first public performance with the conrads at bromley tech in kent on the entrance steps of the main building he admitted i was incredibly nervous but he went okay yeah okay uh so bowie and the conrads performed a few shadows tunes at the school fate at bromley tech on the 22nd of june in the edition of the kentish times the headline ran nearly 4,000 at school fate went on to say that a group of young instrumentalists called the conrads with a c played music on guitars, saxophone and drums. Right, OK. So that same month, the band rehearsed at the Church Hall in Bromley Common. Fans of the bands were charged two shillings to watch the performances. Mm, good, that's yeah. good. I'm like, Tony DeFries would have liked that very much. And the majority of the Conrads, now with a K, shows were held at small local venues, so youth clubs and dance halls and all that kind of stuff, bar mitzvah parties even. Yeah, absolutely. Other dates uh, in that year, June 62, they played the Chislehurst Caves in Bromley Common. In November 62, the uh, Cuddam Village Hall in Cuddam Village in Kent. So just to kind of uh, catch up on the lineup here, this was essentially the lineup lasted from late 62 to uh, January 64. So you had Dave Hadfield on drums, Neville Wills on lead guitar, George Underwood lead vocals, Davy Jones, Bowie, Dave J, tenor sax lead vocals, Roger Ferris on lead vocals, Christine Patton vocals, Stella Patton vocals, and Alan Dodds on rhythm guitar. So David Jones changed his surname to Dave J because he was inspired by Peter J and the Jaywalkers. Uh, according to Bowie, they were only one of two British bands that knew anything about saxophones, and he also toyed with other names like Luther J, Alexis J. Yeah. So the J thing is, yeah, he's, he's, he's out on that, isn't he? <laughs> 
Certainly. So when Bowie left Bromley Tech, I like this, he told his mum and dad about wanting to become a pop star and his mum quickly arranged for him to get a job as an electrician's mate. That didn't happen, did it? Is he, do you know what? If there's one person you cannot imagine as an electrician, no offence to any electricians <laughs> out there, I've got mates who are electricians, honestly I have, but it's David Bowie. Can you you right. can't imagine him scuttling around in a loft looking for wires, can no, you? No, I can't imagine wiring the plug, to be honest, mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm just saying, putting it out there. <laughs> so from late 1962 to early 63, the Conrad's rehearsed at St Mary's Church Hall in Bromley until complaints about the noise from locals forced them to move down the road to an old prefab building. And the set list at this point included stuff like In the Mood, China Doll, The Young Ones and Sweet Little Sixteen. Yeah, I love this. Local photographer Peter Madge offered to manage the band in October 62, but they turned me down because he didn't have any contacts at all in the music business. Fair point. A bad idea. In December 62, the Conrads tried a small publicity campaign, posting some cheaply printed Christmas cards to friends. Uh, the cover features a photo of the band in silver waistcoats in church house gardens in Bromley. Right, so January 63 now, they had new outfits made at Bowie's insistence. So again, you know, he's already thinking yeah. Showbiz, uh, but you know, with a bit of a caveat to it: green corduroy jackets, brown mohair trousers. Talk about itchy suede shoes, white shirts, and striped ties. Apparently, the rest of the group weren't keen on Bowie's idea to adopt a Wild West image. This goes on further into another band, actually, which yeah. we will do in another episode. They also rejected his idea of a name change to the Ghost Riders. Well, well how many names does he want? Yeah, obviously, as you say, you know, he's got the ambition and he wants something visual, doesn't he? That's yeah. what he's looking for. Nobody else is really bothered. He's, uh, so uh, now here's the thing. So would Bowie have ever fancied himself as a frontman at all if lead singer Roger Ferris hadn't stepped on a broken pint glass in the changing rooms of a South London club in uh, 1963, just minutes before they were due to go on stage? All right. right so this is fate dealing with yeah. So uh, Bowie stepped up to the mic. No great surprise there because he was always kind of straining at the leash wasn't mm. he between the saxophone and also singing uh, we had a gig at the Green Man Pub in Blackheath in 1963 Ferris recalled later I stepped on the bottom of a broken pint glass and he went right into my foot just as I was changing to go on stage there was blood everywhere it was pretty nasty a doctor drove me to the hospital and they did the gig without me and David went on as a frontman that night so Ferris added he said I was a better singer but I had nowhere near David's personality or charisma on stage uh, then we move on to May the 18th, 1963. The band played at the Hillsiders Youth Club in Lebanon Gardens, Biggin Hill, Surrey. And Bowie sang Joe Brown's A Picture of You uh, and Bruce Chanel's Hey Baby. Uh, George Underwood took vocals on It's Only Make Believe and A Night at Daddy G's. So they're kind of swapping leads here, aren't they? Yeah, there was always, a, again, a little bit of that going on with George, because he was mm. a good singer as well. And yeah, he, certainly. He got a deal before uh, Bowie as well, mm. didn't he, as I remember. Uh, so along with Alan Dodds, the rhythm guitarist, and Ferris, Bowie wrote a single, I Never Dreamed, in his bedroom okay so Dodds told the Telegraph in 2016 I never dream was really David Bowie's first recording there was always something very special about him I remember him coming to the first practice sessions we had advertised and he was the only person who turned up he was just brilliant. He was a good-looking guy, and he could also play the sax. So, uh, yeah, and incidentally, it's the same saxophone. Bowie kept it for years, and it's on the cover of Pinup. Yeah, on the back cover, yeah. Uh, August the 30th now, 1963, the Conrads went into Decca Studios at Broadhurst Gardens. This is where 
it starts to go pear-shaped okay, right. in West Hampstead. And they cut a version of I Never Dreamed. Main vocals were by Roger Ferris with uh, Bowie on harmonies. Several acetates were cut by Decker. Drummer Dave Hadfield said the song concerned an air crash that Bowie had read about in a newspaper. Ferris, however, said it was a typically upbeat love song of the era. OK, and again, you know, with the, the, the plane crash thing is a thread that goes pretty much... It will go right through to Z, Absolutely. I think, just cropping up every now and then yeah. in Bowie's life and his, and his subconscious. So Decker decided not to offer the group a contract and all he ended up was an acetate of I Never Dreamed, although no copy appears to have survived. I bet mm, it did. I'm sure. I bet Bowie's got one. I mean, he, we, we know he, he kept everything, didn't yeah. he? In the autumn of 63, the Conrad's auditioned for Ready, Steady, Win, which is a talent <laughs> uh, show on TV, organised by Rediffusion, yeah. and they submitted an acetate of I Never Dreamed and appeared against the backdrop of cartoon musicians that Bowie had painted, but it never made, they never made it past the first no. round, did they? they were interested. So Bowie was frustrated by what he felt were the limited ambitions among his bandmates and their choice of song repertoire. He wanted to play more blues and soul stuff instead of covers of uh, pop standards. He was particularly miffed, apparently, when they rejected his idea to cover Marvin Gaye's Can I Get a Witness? Right. right. So his last gig with the Comrades was on New Year's Eve 1963 at a party at Justin Hall in West Wickham. Right, so after Bowie had left the band, the Conrads stayed together and continued playing the club circuit. In January 1964, they auditioned for producer Joe Meek in his flat in Holloway Road. Mm. That is interesting. And they even opened for the Rolling Stones at one point in 1965. Dodd said of Bowie later, he would say that even then he was bisexual, and in those days I'm not even sure I knew what it meant, to be honest, but he was a showman even at that stage in his life. Yeah, the backing singer Stella Patton recalled, I could always remember David as being different. The band all wore the same clothes but he didn't like that. He always had an exercise book with him and he would always be scribbling, writing down lyrics. He was only 15, but even at that age, he didn't like the band's uniform. Uniform. Mm. And, you know, um, again, uh, for the uh, V&A uh, exhibition and, um, and elsewhere around the world that it went, David Bowie is. I mean, you can see all, uh, lots of his notebooks and doodlings and lyrics and, and drawing, uh, you know, costumes. And right, stuff. OK. Did they have any of the Conrad's, you know, costumes there at oh, all? Oh, yeah. Um, do you know, I just can't remember. There's just, I, and I've seen it three times, but it was right. just a little bit... Mind blowing yeah, to be honest. I so I mean, uh, yeah, I've got photographs of a lot of the stuff, you know. Okay, and you weren't supposed to, so don't tell anyone. But I was there for the preview, and so there was nobody marshalling it, and nobody stopping anybody doing anything. Fair enough, Mark. And I wasn't even there, Your Honour. <laughs> okay, we should probably mention here what happened to the rest of the Conrad, shouldn't we? Yeah. So uh, Neville Wills ran a successful recording studio in Covent Garden. He died in 1981 at the age of 37. Oh, Dave Hadfield married backing singer Stella Patton, but they divorced after three years. He carried on in the music business for a while, then he moved to Thailand. Okay, this one. Alan Dodds left the band around 1964 after a dramatic Christian conversion on holiday at Butlins in Clacton. That's where it happens. Right, okay. He then joined the church army, later became a vicar, and now is retired in Devon. Christine Geraghty, knee pattern, became a school secretary in Tonbridge in Kent. Yeah, and Roger Ferris opened his own printing business in Pembrokeshire, which lasted for more than 20 years, and he still plays local gigs. Ah, and Stella Gold, knee pattern, divorced Hadfield, the band's drummer. She was a school secretary and a hospital physiotherapist. The A to Z of David Bowie, with Rob Hughes and Mark Riley. K is for Hanif Qureshi. Indeed, British playwright, screenwriter, filmmaker and novelist, born on the 5th of December 1954, born in Bromley, South London, to a Pakistani father and English mother. His dad was from a wealthy Madras family, most of whose members moved to Pakistan after the partition of British India. His uh, father, uh, Rafishuan, came to the UK in 1950 and worked at the Pakistani embassy. OK, so Qureshi attended Bromley Technical High School and studied for A-levels at Bromley College of Technology. He then spent a year studying philosophy at Lancaster University 
university before dropping out. Later on, he attended King's College London and took a degree in philosophy. Mm. So uh, he started his career in the 1970s as a pornography writer. Yeah. Okay, under the pseudonyms Antonia French and Kareem. Now, it's funny because I've done some research here. Have you? And, yeah, I have, and I've got some of the um, some of the dialogue that he wrote for some of these Oh, have pieces, you now? Yeah. Wow. And uh, these are just some examples. Yeah. Oh, that's nice. Oh, that's good. Do that again. And, oi, stop it. Oh, that's, wow. I can't believe you. That's all I could find. Okay, wow. It you, took me a long time yeah, to find it, Yeah, he dug that up. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he then wrote plays for the Hampstead Theatre, Soho Polly, and uh, was with the Royal Court by the time he was 18. So, mm. a talented fella. Definitely. He wrote My Beautiful Laundrette in 1985, a screenplay about a gay uh, Pakistani-British boy growing up in 80s London for the film that was directed by Stephen Frears. The film starred Daniel Day-Lewis, of course, and uh, Gordon Wanaka. He also wrote the screenplay for Sammy and Rosie Get Laid in 87 and in 1991 he wrote and directed his own feature film London Kills Me so as well as writing various other novels uh, Karishi published a memoir My Ear at His Heart in 2004 of course he's best known for The Buddha of Suburbia isn't he? That's what we're going to get to now so his 1990 novel The Buddha of Suburbia won the Whitbread Award for the best first novel it was made into a four part drama series by the BBC in 1993 with the soundtrack by David Bowie. Indeed. So the Buddha of Suburbia, thought to be autobiographical. Central character is uh, Kareem, who's a mixed-race teenager who just wants to escape the suburbs of South London and make a new life in the capital during the 70s. So the Bowie connection now. We're getting there, aren't yeah. we? So uh, like Bowie, Qureshi was a former student at Bromley Tech, though he studied there in the 70s, which was a decade after Bowie, of course. Uh, the Buddha of Suburbia is set in the area and includes references to the school. Uh, so Qureshi was commissioned by Interview magazine to grill Bowie in 1993, during which he asked permission to use some of Bowie's early songs for the TV score of the series. He then plucked up the courage to ask Bowie if he would be interested in writing some original music for it. He replied, I thought you were never going to ask. Yeah. How brilliant is that for yeah. him? So it's quite a wide-ranging interview. Uh, Bowie kind of opens up to Qureshi about the death of his dad, for example, who he'd passed away in 1969. He said it was at a point where I was just beginning to grow up a little bit and appreciate I'd have to to uh, know each other. He just died at the wrong time because there were so many things I would have loved to have said to him and asked him about. And during the same interview, uh, Bowie talks about his ambition. I love this. He said, at no point did I ever doubt I would be as near as anybody could be to England's Elvis Presley. Right. Even from eight or nine years old, I thought, well, I'll be the greatest rock star in England. I just made up my mind. The, the thing is, though, I wonder how many other people made up the mind that they well, were going to be exactly that, and it didn't happen to them. So, but yeah, you know, bless him. Uh, released between Black Tie, White Noise in 1993 and Outside in 1995, the Buddha of Suburbia album was produced and mixed at Mountain Studios in Montreux in Switzerland, with Qureshi sometimes in attendance. Mm. And according to Bowie, it only took six days to write and record, but 15 days to mix because of some technical breakdowns. And although the album is officially classified as a soundtrack, the title track is the only song that actually features in the TV series. Yes, yeah, so Bowie played many instruments on the album with the help of Erdal uh, Kizilke. Mike Garson plays piano on two tracks. Lenny Kravitz plays guitar on the alternative version of the title track. In the liner notes for the album, Bowie wrote about the themes and production techniques involved, including a list of what he called residue from the 1970s as his inspiration for all the songs. Right, OK, so this includes the following references. Free Association lyrics, Pink Floyd, Harry Parch, Blues Clubs, Unterden Linden, Brook Museum, Pet Sounds, Friends of the Craze, mm. uh, T-Rex, The Casserole, Noy, Kraftwerk, Bromley, Croydon, Eno, Prostitutes and Soho, Ronnie Scott's Club, Travels Through Russia, Loneliness, OJs, Philip Glass in New York Clubs and Drugs. Yeah, I, 
A mixed bunch. A mixed bunch, indeed. The sleeve notes also found Bowie explaining that uh, he says this collection of music bears little resemblance to the small instrumentation of the BBC play. So Bowie you know, used the title track as a bit of a jump-off point for for experiments, didn't he? He says, yeah. that I took each theme or motif from the play and initially stretched or lengthened it to five or six minutes duration. And then he went on to sort of layer the music from there. So it's experimental in loads of bits. There's lots of stuff that recalls the ambient music he made with Brian Eno, the synthesizers on there and acoustic guitars. Yeah. Yeah, sure. And I mean, it is strange from Bowie's point of view. He once called The Buddha of Suburbia his favourite album, Mm. despite the fact that it was deleted for many years. And Bowie said the album itself only got one review, a good one as it happens, and is virtually non-existent as far as my catalogue goes. It was designated a soundtrack and got zilch in the way of marketing money. A real shame. Yeah, often seen as Bowie's rebirth, though, isn't it, in the early 90s? It is, yeah. It's kind of like coming back to what people expected from him, the kind of thoughtful stuff, and then the less kind of poppy kind yeah. of uh, and outlandish stuff you De- know definitely so a butter of suburbia single was released in various guises included a cd version with holographic print the album only made number 87 in the uk charts which isn't surprising seeing as it wasn't promoted at all yeah uh, not helped by the fact that emi also released the singles collection a week after it came out so uh, the album was reissued in september 2007 in the uk the A to Z of David Bowie was written and presented by Rob Hughes and Mark Riley and recorded and edited by Howard Nock. If you'd like to review or rate this podcast, well, that would be much appreciated. In the next episode... Kemp it. Lindsay Kemp. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.